This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. This is a very important question to discuss. It's very important that we do it diligently and in a nice way, I think. So both you who are a Christian, you know it says in the Bible that we should give reasons for our hope with humility and with respect. And for those of you who are not Christians or maybe not religious, it's just common sense to be a nice person, isn't it? So with these words, I, um, I would like to uh, ask Turbion to start his 20-minute session. Um, thank you very much for this kind and challenging invitation. I will start my speak with, with characterizing my own view of morality. First of all, I believe that there are moral truths. It's true, for example, that it would be wrong to torture an innocent child with no good purpose, not even for the fun of it. It would be wrong to do this. It's a moral truth, I would say. And then I, I reject all sorts of moral um, nihilism uh, and also expressivist ideas about what we do when we utter moral sentences. I think morality is different here from matters of taste, for example. When I say that a certain picture is a good picture, it might mean, at least according to some, interpretations of it, that I just express my aesthetic feelings towards this object. There is no proposition expressed that could be either true or false. There is just a mere expression of feelings or attitudes. But morality then, on my account, is different. We do express propositions, and these expressions are true or false. As a matter of fact, each moral proposition, consistent proposition, is either true or false, no matter whether we know it or not. Moreover, I think that moral truth is independent of our conceptualization and, and of us in a manner that is of importance here. And in this, morality is different from, say, grammar. There is truth in, about grammar as well. I mean, you could say that a certain sentence is not well-formed, and you can discuss whether a certain sentence is well-formed or not. And there is a truth about the matter, but, but this truth is not independent of us. We can change the way we speak, and we can make an utterance well-formed by using it and by having people who, who theorize about language to accept a new, newly adopted manner of speech. So we can mold the grammatical truth, but, but basic moral truth is not up to us to mold in this way. It's out there to be found or not to be found, existing independently of us. Uh, Thirdly, finally, I think also that this truth is irreducible to other kinds of truth. And in this, I think morality is different from some sort of science. Uh, I mean, it's a debated matter again, but some people tend to believe that uh, chemistry, for example, will uh, at the end of the day be reduced to physics. There are no genuine chemical truths, some people hold. Uh, it would be possible to see that, that all chemical truth is reducible in some sense uh, to physics. But I 
My conjecture is that morality is not reducible to any other kind of discourse in this manner, not to science, not to religion. It's sui generis, it's of its own right, morality. Now this realistic view, this realistic view of morality, is really deeply entrenched in our way of, of speaking about morality and thinking about it. I mean, we often say things like, I thought this was the right thing to do, but, but I was wrong. Or at first I thought it was right, but then I realized that it wasn't. I know I shouldn't behave in that manner and so forth. We have a way of speaking about morality that is based on some sort of realistic assumption that it is a truth out there to, to be right or wrong about. Moreover, uh, when we disagree about moral affairs, we not only get angry with each other and destroy the party, we, 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 I, mean, I mean, this is also signifying that, that there is something deep going on beyond this disagreement. We, we, we don't rest satisfied with the fact that we have two conflicting opinions, like we could do if some people say that they like a certain uh, kind of food and another person says that he dislikes it. I mean, it's okay, we can live with that, we can have a good party. But, but if, if we have conflicting moral opinions, we feel that, that uh, one of them has to yield. Why? Well, the most natural explanation is that we feel that both of them can't be true. At least one of them must be false when they're conflicting. They can both be wrong, of course, but, but, but that's another affair. So I think we have this deeply entrenched, realistic view about morality also. I mean, this is not really an argument in defense of this position, but, but I just sketch it now so that you shall know how I see morality. I could also add that I think that the true moral principle uh, must be something close to the utilitarian formula, that we should always act so as to maximize the sum total of well-being in universe. That's a very heavy demand on us, and perhaps we rarely live up to it, but, but that's really what we should do. That's my moral belief, that this is a, the true content of, of morality in the final analysis. Now, how can I say that this is a true morality, that this is a plausible moral hypothesis, the utilitarian formula? Can we also have knowledge in morality? Well, I think we can um, to some extent. And I think that even if morality is sealed uh, in its own right, separate from science, for example, the methods we apply when we try to arrive at uh, justified moral beliefs is not very different from the way we proceed in science. There are two kinds of moral arguments, really, and one of them we end up in when we want to solve a hard practical question. A woman ponders whether she should have an abortion or not, for example, a practical question. Uh, if she has a sound moral principle, and also an account of all the relevant facts. Then she can just deduce what should, she should do. She can arrive at a practical conclusion.
abstain from the abortion, for example. But of course, we rarely, I mean, we don't have this kind of information. It's hard to come by all the relevant facts, of course, and which facts are relevant are determined both by which principles to apply and, and what the, the nature of the problem you are facing. But, but the principle is the principal problem here, of course, the, the main problem. Which principle should we apply to this practical question? And then we have another kind of moral argument which goes the other way around. From firm intuitions about uh, concrete cases, they could also be uh, thought experiments. We philosophers are well known for constructing all sorts of thought experiments. And I mean, even physicists construct thought experiments. I think there is nothing wrong about it, but we can also start with actual situations where we feel that we have a firm belief about what should be done and then we can try to, suppose we, we have a situation where we feel that it would be wrong of this woman to have this particular abortion why, was, why would it be wrong? We try to find principles consistent with, with this conclusion and we try to sort out which one among all the possible principles we can come up with is the most, gives the best explanation of this conclusion. Is it because all abortions are wrong? If all abortions are wrong, why are they wrong? Is it because life is sacred, the sanctity of life doctrine? At least innocent human life should never be uh, destroyed. Could that be the explanation? Or is it because every moral agent has a right to life and to, to physical integrity? but that brings in also the pregnant woman and her rights? Or is it because, for, for simple pragmatic reasons, it seems not to be a good idea to have this abortion? The relation with the husband, the, the father-to-be, would be destroyed and all sorts of uh, bad consequences would crop up. We can realize this. Well, we have to run through all sorts of, of hypotheses of this kind. There's no way to prove, I think, uh, in one simple argument that one moral principle is superior to all others, but, but you have to use this um, indirect, piecemeal approach, and, and then you can see that, well, in this situation, a certain principle seems fruitful. You, you think that this principle explains this moral intuition you have here. And then you have a kind of symmetry. Where if, if this is the best explanation of the conclusion you have made, you have made an inference then to the best explanation, you say. You have the, the principle explaining this instance. And you can go also the other way around and say that this instance confirms this principle. You have relations of explanation on the one hand and you have relations of, of confirmation on the other hand. And this is, I mean, we know this from, from the basic courses in scientific methodology. And I think it's no different in morality. But this, of course, is only the, the beginning of a long process because uh, we must try out this principle that we have found is the best one in this situation, in new situations, and we must try to see whether it also gives the right explanation in those situations. And perhaps you have to revise our principle, we have to revise our intuitions about particular uh, situations. And hopefully, when we have pursued this uh, method for some time, we end up in something that uh, the Harvard philosopher John Rawls has called uh, reflective equilibrium. Uh, all our views cohere with each other. 
they explain each other and they are consistent with each other and so forth. And then I would say that we are justified in our moral beliefs when we have arrived at them in this manner. And then we can use them, explain them, uh, to, to draw conclusions about what to do also in new particular cases. But, but uh, we must al always remember, of course, that having a justified belief is different from having a true belief. Justification is one thing, truth another thing. And we know from the history of science that that scientists have often been, been justified in all sorts of beliefs that have, have turned out to be false. But if we, have, we happen to have a true belief, and be, we happen to be, if we are justified in it, then we could say that we have moral uh, knowledge as well. Now, assume that this picture is roughly correct, then. Uh, where does God enter the picture? Is there any room for God? in this uh, picture of morality. For example, if God is dead, does that mean that everything is permitted, as Dostoevsky had it? Now, I mean, Dostoevsky was just wrong about this. Uh, no moral conclusions, and, and the statement that everything is permitted is a moral conclusion, follows from any assumption of this kind. I think he was wrong. As a matter of fact, I think there is very little space left for God in this picture of morality. So if you accept it, it might be difficult to find a place for God in it. Uh, now for the rest of the discussion, I will assume that God exists. I mean, we're not discussing whether God exists or not. Just assume that God is, exists. And assume, I will also assume that he, he possesses, he or she or it, or whatever you like, possesses those, those attributes that we usually attribute to him that is, he is uh, omniscient, he, he is almighty, and he is infinitely good. Something of the kind is true of him, and, and, and he does exist. And yet, for all that, I think there is no room for him in this picture of morality. He is irrelevant from a moral point of view. Now, there seem to be three ideas. How much time do I have? Seven minutes, okay. Uh, seven minutes for three ideas. One of them is the ontological idea that God enters the pictures by deciding what is right or wrong. If God says that something is right, then it is right because he has said so. And if he says that something is wrong, then it is wrong because God has ordained that it is wrong. The other, we could say, is an epistemological view to the effect that even if God can't decide what is right or wrong, and I will argue that he can't, even if he exists and, and have these attributes, uh, he might at least uh, tell us what to do and give moral advice. I will reject that idea as well. Then at last we have the motivational approach, that even if God can't decide what is God, good or bad or right or wrong, even if he can't advise us about moral things, he can at least motivate us, give us a motive to, to perform right actions rather than wrong actions. I will deny that as well. I will have none of this. Uh, let me just briefly then indicate what I think is wrong about these ideas. First, the idea that God could decide what is called right or wrong. I, I, will, I think this is really 
for moral reasons, outrageous to, to believe that he can. I mean, there are all sorts of candidates to plausible moral principles, giving uh, ideas about what are right-making and wrong-making characteristics of actions. And I think plausible such candidates are things such as uh, you should not hurt people because it doesn't feel well to be hurt, or you shouldn't violate their rights because it's uh, a dishonor to, to a person when you do, and so forth. You must have a morality that is focused on the patient, so to speak, not on the agent and not on the spectator that's standing beside and giving advice about the situation. So I think it's something utterly wrong in the idea that God, God's will would be in this way of good-making or right-making or wrong-making characteristic of action. Also, I mean, we have the well-known objection then that if God had wanted had liked torture, for example, then torture would have been right, uh, which is also a strange implication, I think, of this idea. Perhaps there are ways of avoiding this conclusion, and we might come back to them in the discussion, but they run into other difficulties, I think. Uh, so this is a non-starter, I think. It's even kind of blasphemy, I think, to, to think that, that God uh, decides what is good and bad, because it makes God not infinitely good, but, but self-conceited, rather. I mean, what does it mean, then, that God is infinitely God, is good? It means that he loves himself so much that no one can love himself anymore. I, I think that is kind of heresy, really, to, to adopt this point of view. What about the epistemological idea, then? Could, could God give us advice? Well, if God is good and it's part of God's nature to be good, then, of course, God only performs good and right actions. Perhaps God can perform evil actions. Perhaps there is a possible world where God performs evil actions as well, but that's, well, let's not bother with that possibility here right now, because in, in the actual world, God only uh, performs morally unobjectionable actions. I concede that. And he gives only good advice. So could we not, then just not turn to God for advice? Well, the problem, of course, is that how should we know that, that the advice we receive really is coming from God and not from Satan himself? Uh, even if a man with a white beard is speaking to us from the skies, he may be a fake. And how... Should, should we ascertain that the, the message is genuine? I mean, the only way to do that is to compare it, I think, with our own moral intuitions. If it's a morally sound, basically sound message, then it's genuine. If not, it must be from Satan. There is no other way to tell. So this means that even if God can give us, give us moral advice, when the advice is received by us, it's really too late. We already know the message. So that's two, a non-starter, the second idea. The third, of course, I mean, it would be foolhardy to deny that, that it has worked. I mean, if you read the, the, the Sermon on the Mountain, is that it's called in English, Sermon on the Mountain, you see that, that God or Jesus tell, tells you to be kind to each other and so forth, and, and then he always adds that otherwise you will... will uh, suffer uh, terrible 
punishments in, in hell. And if you behave, uh, then of course you will be uh, receive a lot of treasure, internal bliss in return for this uh, good behavior. So of course, I mean, the religions have been very effective, of course, in, in instilling a kind of moral behavior in people. But, but note that when you are doing this, then you, you have people behave well, but for egoistic reasons. Because this is a way of, of not ending up in hell. That's why you behave decently to each other not destroy parties and so forth. Not because you love each other, but because, well, or if you love each other, it's because you want to good, make a good impression. So, so this is really also a non-starter. It, it can produce good behavior, but, but for the wrong reason. So, so the, God is again out of the moral picture, at least narrowly conceived, as I have done that. Yeah, so, so to conclude, then, that's the end of my talk is that even if we grant that God exists, even if we grant that God is uh, infinitely good, almighty, um, and everything you want to add to this description, uh, we end up with the conclusion that he is of little uh, use in, in moral uh, situations, moral arguments. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Tanfro. Now, uh, Professor Bill Craig. I'm not Mike. Nope. No, you can have you can, yeah, Either you can get the mic or you can stand behind the pulpit. You too. Well, good evening. I want to say what a delight it is to be participating uh, in the debate tonight with Professor uh, Tanfro and uh, to be discussing this very important issue with you this evening. If God is dead, is everything permitted? When we ask that question, we're posing in a provocative way the meta-ethical question of the objectivity of moral values. Are the moral values that we guide our lives by mere social conventions uh, akin to driving on the right hand versus the left hand side of the road? Or are they valid independently of our apprehension of them? And if they are, then what is their ontological foundation? Moreover, why should we act morally, especially when it conflicts with self-interest? Or are we in some way held accountable for our decisions and actions? Well, tonight I want to defend two main contentions in the debate. First of all, if God exists, then the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability is secured. And secondly, if God does not exist, then morality is just a human invention. That is to say, morality is wholly subjective and non-binding. So consider then that first contention that if God exists, then the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability is secured. Here I want to make three sub-points to show the proper role that God plays in morality. First, if God exists, objective moral values exist. To say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is good or evil independently of whether anybody believes so or not. It's to say, for example, that the Holocaust was morally evil, even though the Nazis who carried it out thought that it was good. 
And it would still have been evil, even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in brainwashing or exterminating everybody who disagreed with them. On the Judeo-Christian view, objective moral values are rooted in God. God's own holy and loving nature supplies the absolute standard against which all decisions and actions are measured. God's moral nature is thus what Plato called the good. He is the locus and source of moral value. He is by nature essentially loving, kind, faithful, uh, generous, and so forth. And thus, if God exists, objective moral values exist. Secondly, if God exists, objective moral duties exist. To say that we have objective moral duties is to say that we have certain moral obligations and responsibilities, whether we believe that we do or not. On the Judeo-Christian view, God's moral nature is expressed in relation to us in the form of divine commands, which constitute for us our moral duties. And thus far from being arbitrary, as Professor Tenker assumed, these commands flow necessarily from God's moral nature. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, the whole moral duty of man can be summed up in the two great commandments. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your heart and with all your mind. And second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this foundation, we can affirm the objective rightness of love, generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality, and condemn as objectively wrong selfishness, hatred, abuse, discrimination, and oppression. Third, if God exists, then moral accountability exists. For on the Judeo-Christian view, God holds all persons morally accountable for their actions. Evil and wrong will be punished. Righteousness will be vindicated. Good ultimately triumphs over evil. And we shall finally see that we do live in a moral universe after all. In the end, the scales of God's justice will be balanced. And thus the moral choices that we make in this life have a supreme and eternal significance. We can, with consistency, make moral choices which run contrary to our own self-interest and even make acts of extreme self-sacrifice, knowing that such decisions are not uh, empty and ultimately meaningless gestures. Rather, our moral lives have a paramount significance. So, in summary, then, I think it's evident that if God does exist, then the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability is secured. Theism thus provides a sound foundation for morality. Now that brings me to my second contention, that if God does not exist, then morality is just a human invention. That is to say, morality is wholly subjective and non-binding. And here again, I want to make three sub-points. First, if atheism is true, then objective moral values do not exist. If God does not exist, then what foundation remains for objective moral values? More particularly, what is the basis 
for the value of human beings. Professor Tenshu's view is called hedonistic utilitarianism. He believes that human happiness or pleasure is objectively good. Now, quite honestly, I just don't see any reason to think that if atheism were true, that there would be anything particularly good about human happiness. If there is no God, then there's no reason to regard human happiness as is any way important or significant. After all, on the atheistic view, what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, and which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. The philosopher J.P. Moreland points out, on an evolutionary secular scenario, human beings are nothing special. The universe evolved to us through a blind process of chance and necessity. There is nothing intrinsically valuable about human beings in terms of having moral, non-natural properties. The view that being human is special is guilty of speciesism, an unjustified bias toward one's own species. On the atheistic view, human morality is just a byproduct of socio-biological evolution. Just as a troop of baboons exhibit cooperative behavior and even altruistic sacrificial behavior because evolution has determined that such behavior is advantageous in the struggle for survival, so their primate cousins, Homo sapiens, also exhibit similar behavior for the same reason. As a result of socio-biological pressures, there has evolved among Homo sapiens a sort of herd morality which functions well in the perpetuation of our species in the struggle for survival. But on the atheistic view, there doesn't seem to be anything about Homo sapiens that makes this morality objectively true. What would Professor Tenshu say, I wonder, to someone who denies that human beings are intrinsically valuable or the flourishing of their species particularly important in the grand scheme of things? In an interesting article, Is Rape Wrong on Andromeda? Professor Michael Roos argues that rape may not be considered wrong by intelligent extraterrestrial life. He writes, Although the immorality of rape is a human constant, we cannot thereby assume that it will be a constant for other organisms, including extraterrestrial intelligent organisms. Certainly, if we look elsewhere in the animal world, we see acts which look very much like rape occur on a regular basis. Furthermore, there are good biological reasons why this sort of behavior frequently occurs. If a male animal is prepared to attempt rape on occasion, he is more likely to reproduce than otherwise. But this raises two very troublesome questions for Professor Tenchu's view. First of all, how should these extraterrestrials who consider rape moral behave toward us? Suppose they're sufficiently similar to mammals to be able to copulate with human females. In their view, raping throughout the earth would be morally just fine. If we protested, but 
your action doesn't contribute to the maximization of human happiness or pleasure, they would reply, who cares about human pleasure? What we care about is extraterrestrial pleasure. In fact, suppose they were as superior to us as we are to pigs and cattle, and they decided to farm the earth to use us as food and laboring animals. On the atheistic view, there would seem to be nothing immoral about this, nor can I see why these extraterrestrials should be any more concerned about the happiness of our species than we are about the happiness of pigs and cows. Secondly, second question, why shouldn't the human rapist rape if he feels like it? Extraterrestrials do it. Animals do it. Why shouldn't we do it? All Professor Tenchur can say is that it doesn't contribute to the greatest amount of human happiness. But so what? There's nothing particularly valuable about human beings or their happiness that should give us pause on the atheistic view. Professor Tenchur is guilty, I think, of speciesism. And I just can't see any reason why, on the atheistic view, that we should regard human happiness as objectively good. Second, if God does not exist, then objective moral duties do not exist. On the atheistic view, human beings are just animals, and animals have no moral obligations to one another. Why think that apart from God, we would have any moral obligations to do anything? Who or what would impose such obligations upon us? Richard Taylor, who is a non-Christian ethicist, makes this point effectively when he writes, a duty is something that is owed, but something can be owed only to some person or persons. There can be no such thing as duty in isolation. The idea of political or legal obligation is clear enough. Similarly, the idea of an obligation higher than this and referred to as moral obligation is clear enough provided reference to some lawmaker higher than those of the state is understood. In other words, our moral obligations can be understood as those that are imposed by God. This does give a clear sense to the claim that our moral obligations are more binding upon us than our political obligations. But, he asks, what if this higher-than-human lawmaker is no longer taken into account? Does the concept of moral obligation still make sense? He answers, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. In particular, why think that on the atheistic view we have any obligation at all to promote the greatest amount of human happiness? Who lays such an obligation upon us? Why is the egoist wrong when he regards his own happiness as more important than the happiness of all those other people he doesn't even know? On the atheistic view, why should their happiness be more important to him than his own happiness? I honestly can't see any reason why, on the atheistic view, we have an obligation to do anything. Finally, third, if atheism is true, there is no moral accountability for one's actions. 
even if there were objective values and duties under naturalism, they're irrelevant because there is no moral accountability. If life ends at the grave, then it makes no difference whether one lives as a Joseph Stalin or as a Mother Teresa. As the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky rightly said, if there is no immortality, then all things are permitted. The state torturers in the communist uh, Soviet prisons understood this all too well. Richard Bumbrat, who was tortured in communist prisons, reports, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist torturers often said, there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I have heard one torturer even say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour when I can express all the evil in my heart. He expressed it in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. Given the finality of death, it really does not matter how you live. So what do you say to someone who concludes that we may as well just live as we please out of pure self-interest? This presents a pretty grim picture for an atheistic ethicist like Kai Nielsen of the University of Calgary. He writes, we have not been able to show that reason requires the moral point of view or that all really rational persons should not be individual egoists or classical amoralists. Reason doesn't decide here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. Pure, practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality." End quote. Now, somebody might say, but it's in your best interest to live in a moral lifestyle. But clearly that's not always true. We all know situations in which self-interest runs smack in the face of morality. Moreover, if one is sufficiently powerful, like a Ferdinand Marcos or a Papa Doc Duvalier, one can always ignore the dictates of conscience and safely live in self-indulgence. Historian Stuart C. Easton sums it up well when he writes, there is no objective reason why man should be moral unless morality different perspectives on morality depending on whether or not God exists. If God exists, there is a sound foundation for morality. If God does not exist, then as Nietzsche saw, we are ultimately landed in nihilism. But the choice between these two need not be arbitrarily made. On the contrary, the very consideration we've been discussing tonight can constitute moral justification for believing in God. For example, if we do think that objective moral values exist, then we shall be led logically to the conclusion that God exists. And could anything be more obvious than the fact that objective moral values do exist? Professor Tenjure himself uh, argues that we observe objective moral values in the world. And thus the existence of objective moral values serves to demonstrate the existence of God. Or take the nature of moral obligation. 
If we deny God's existence, it's difficult to make sense of moral duty or right and wrong. It follows that if moral obligations and right and wrong do exist, they necessitate God's existence. And certainly we do have such obligations. Recently speaking at a Canadian university, I saw a poster in the hall put up by the Sexual Assault and Information Center. It read, Sexual Assault. No one has the right to assault a man, woman, or child. Now most of us recognize that statement is true, but the atheist can make no sense of a person's right not to be sexually assaulted by another. The best answer to the question of the source of moral obligation is that moral rightness or wrongness consists in agreement or disagreement with the will and commands of a holy loving God. Finally, take the problem of moral accountability. Here we find a powerful practical argument for believing in God. For to believe that God does not exist uh, and that there is no moral accountability would be quite literally demoralizing. That is to say, we would have to believe that our moral choices are ultimately insignificant, since both our faith and that of the universe will be the same, regardless of what we do. By demoralization, I mean a deterioration in moral motivation. It's hard to do the right thing when that means sacrificing your self-interest or to resist temptation when the desire is strong. And the belief that ultimately it does not matter what you choose or do is apt to sap one's moral strength and undermine one's moral life. By contrast, there's nothing so likely to strengthen the moral life as the beliefs that one will be held accountable for one's actions and that one's choices do make a difference in bringing about the good. Theism is thus a morally ad advantageous belief and this provides practical grounds for belief in God. So in conclusion, if God exists, a sound foundation for morality exists. On the other hand, if we can be good, then it truly follows that God must exist. Okay. Uh, you have to use the, the microphone again. but not the kind of morality I was speaking about, uh, because this is the kind of morality you know from, from your home. Your father told you what to do and you had to obey, and, and the state tells you what to do and you have to obey, and then there is an even higher authority telling you what to do. I mean, if God exists and behaves like that, then, then we have a kind of objective morality based on uh, the existence of God. But, but I, I think this is not a good theological idea of God. It doesn't really make me like him when I consider him uh, like that. I, I think, and it also takes out really the independence of morality. So I, I wonder why does Professor Craig want to have this kind of God solving moral problems? 
It seems also that Professor Craig thinks that morality is a rather simple affair. Uh, the moral truths are there in the Holy Scripture, and, and they have a specific source. They are coming from God. And how else could we know that egoism is false, for example, if we couldn't uh, consult God and get this information? Well, I don't think it's obvious that egoism is uh, wrong. It's one hypothesis among others. I've just written an introduction to normative ethics where I discuss, I think it's, I discuss seven different approaches. And I don't think there is any simple way of, of saying whether egoism, utilitarianism, Kantianism, uh, moral rights theories, virtue ethics, feminist ethics, environmental ethics, and so forth, which one presents the best picture. I, I think we always have to take this indirect tack when we want to ascertain what is right and wrong. And perhaps that's scary, this picture of morality is somewhat scary because it leaves God, even if it exists, outside the moral discussion. But I think it's a more true picture. It's, it's more true to morality because it saves the self-contained character of morality. You have to do hard work within morality when you want to know what to do and, and not uh, to do and not to do. And also, Professor Craig touches on the subject of me, the meaning of life. Well, I think that, that the objectivity of morality, I even have a chapter on that in the book you, you were referring to. I, I think the objectivity of morality is something that gives uh, meaning to our lives. The fact that, that we're not just behaving against each other, we're behaving rightly or wrongly, and there is a true answer to this. I mean, this gives a sense of, of importance to what we do. No matter whether we, we, we die and go away, while we're here, it's even more important how we treat each other. And, and we have to find out a proper way of doing so. And we can do this. I think with this kind of approach I have indicated, we can approach the moral truth. Well, what if our moral capabilities and sensibilities are the results of evolution? Does this mean that, that um, there cannot be a, a genuine objective moral truth? No, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that we should feel threatened by the evolutionary story that could be told, uh, told about the development of our moral capabilities. A similar story can be told about our mathematical faculties, for example. But this doesn't mean that, that 2 plus 2 does, does not make 4. I mean, this is an objective mathematical truth, I think. And, and the fact that there is an evolutionary explanation of a certain capacity we have doesn't say anything about the content of, of, of our thoughts. I mean, there are, of course, aspects of our thought that lacks objectivity. I, I mentioned matters of taste, for example, whether something tastes good or whether, even whether a picture is a good one or not, that, that's a matter of taste. But, but, but uh, the, the objectivity of morality is not ruined by the, the evolutionary hypothesis that this is the way we, we have uh, gained this kind of capacity for making this kind of distinction. So I, I feel at a loss somehow here. I, 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 I'm not quite sure where I should place Professor Craig here in his statement, um, is it really the idea, he says that, that God is a source of morality, does that mean that, that the will of God is a right-making characteristic, or, or does it perhaps rather mean that when we say that something is right, then, then we just 
saying this is what God wants us to do. But then I'm not so interested in morality anymore. I think that's a, that's a rather superficial kind of morality. And I'm also amazed, I want to press that point too, about the idea that, that morality is, is rather simple, that, that we, in the Holy Scripture we have the message. Um, I, I, I have the impression, even among people who tend to believe that they are all of the same moral conviction, Christians who are all of the same moral opinion, they, they adhere to more Christian morality, they say. They, they, they disagree in many affairs here. To some, uh, the core, really, of, of Christian morality is the sanctity of life doctrine. That's really what Christian ethics is about. You must never kill an innocent human being. That's what it really comes to. Uh, but, but others are more... Uh, well, I have sometimes said that I, I, I get the impression that God is utilitarian when I read about it. That must, might be to press the case a bit too hard. But I, but I just want to stress that it's, it's a rather difficult, I think, uh, objective to tell exactly which kind of morality is surfacing in the biblical text. So, so I don't think it is an easy task to, to arrive at this conclusion. And then we have the problems I mentioned earlier on that we don't know even if God is the source of the message, perhaps in the simplistic manner that he decides only uh, what to do, like our fathers used to do, we still must be uncertain about the content of this message because we have to compare it with something before we can be certain that it's not from Satan rather than from God. So we have to, I think we, we can't get past this necessity of pursuing moral arguments independently as if God is not part of the picture. Uh, then, then I was accused of, of being a speciesist, but, but that was a simple misunderstanding because the kind of utilitarianism that I'm advocating doesn't place the human species in a, any special position. Um, it's as bad to torture another animal as it is to torture a human being according to my uh, moral view. And of course, uh, those who dislike this particular moral stance might, might go to the Bible perhaps to try to find some evidence there, textual evidence there, for the position that, that human creatures are special, that, that we are more noble, more, more important from a moral point of view than other species. But I, I don't think that's a good idea really as a Christian to do that because I don't think this is a good moral idea. And I think also the textual evidence there is rather weak. I mean, if you read Genesis and, and, and uh, have a charitable interpretation of it, uh, I think there is nothing in it that really forces you to uh, this rather stupid, I think, conclusion. So, I mean, and again, you can see that that you can't really solve questions with reference to the Holy Scripture, with reference to God. And, and the reason might be, I think, that, that God is irrelevant to these kinds of discussion. That doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that God is not an important being. I mean, he is very important if he have, has all those characteristics. But, but we, we are kind of left alone with our moral problems for all that. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Tenkra, uh, Professor Craig.
you two have 12 minutes. Okay. Well, let me review those two contentions that I said I was prepared to defend in tonight's debate. First, I argued, you remember, that theism provides a sound foundation for morality. First of all, I said it provides a sound foundation for objective moral values. And here, Professor Tinker asks, well, where on this chart, then, do you belong? I would belong on number one here, that God provides an ontological foundation for moral values. Moral values are determined by the essential properties of God, such as his being loving, kind, generous, and so forth. I also did defend, uh, number three, that uh, moral accountability does provide a morally bracing effect for motivating the moral life. But I wasn't really interested tonight in number two. And you remember I argued that uh, by having moral values rooted in God's nature, it gives them an objective, transcendent foundation that allows you to escape sociocultural relativism. Dr. Tenshir says, well, but why do you want this kind of God? Well, it's not a matter of my wanting this kind of God. It's a matter of an argument here. It seems to me that in the absence of God, objective moral values, duties, and moral accountability do not exist. I just can't see why we should make this leap of faith and think that on atheism, human beings and their morality is objective. On the other hand, if we do think that we have moral duties and values and accountability, then it follows logically and deductively that therefore such a God exists. So this is the conclusion of an argument, as I explained. He also uh, says that he wants to keep morality self-contained. Well, but far from doing that, it seems to me that his hedonistic utilitarianism, or atheistic utilitarianism, in the end annihilates morality. Because far from being self-contained, there just isn't any objective moral value or moral duties or moral accountability on atheism. At least, I don't think we've heard any argument tonight to show that there is. Now, secondly, I said that if God exists, there are objective moral duties. God's divine commands are constitutive for us of our moral obligations. Dr. Tinger says, well, is the will of God right-making? Yes, I think this is correct. What God commands becomes our moral duties. What he forbids are our moral prohibitions, and what he permits then is something that is what he would call right or permissible for us. So you can give it a good account of moral obligation on the basis of divine commands. But notice that they're not arbitrary. Uh, unlike William Ockham's voluntarism, I'm arguing, as Aquinas and others did, that these are rooted in the moral nature of God themselves, and so these are not arbitrary commands. Dr. Tenshir says, well, are you making a meaning claim, reducing moral language to the language of divine commands? No. My argument is not an argument about moral semantics. I'm not giving a meaning claim about the meaning of moral duties. Rather, I'm giving an ontological foundation for moral duties. Where do our moral duties come from? Why do we have these obligations? because we have been commanded by a holy and loving God to do these things. Thirdly, I argued that uh, if God exists, moral accountability exists because God holds us responsible for our moral actions, and this gives our moral lives great significance, and he did not respond to that point. So I think it's evident in tonight's debate that if theism is true, it does furnish a sound foundation for moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability. Now the question is, what about atheism? Can atheism do as well? 
Well, I argued first that if atheism is true, there's no objective moral values. There's no reason to think that human happiness uh, is good on atheism. Now, Dr. Tenshu says, well, evolution doesn't undercut the existence of objective values. I, I grant that point. That would be to commit the genetic fallacy. Uh, but that's not my argument. Rather, what I'm arguing is that without God, there's simply no reason to think that the happiness of this particular species is good or has this moral property of goodness. I just don't see any reason to think that on an atheistic view, this species is anything special. Now, uh, he says, but on my view, human species is not in fact special. I'm talking about any sort of pleasure whatsoever. But I think in saying that, he has, he has yielded uh, the floor, in a sense, to me, because you see what that means is that it makes it even more dubious that pleasure is the source or the locus of moral goodness. And remember that on that view then, these extraterrestrials raping throughout the earth could be justified because it would so increase the maximum amount of pleasure in the universe that that would be permitted. In other words, his view really does lead to everything being permitted because you can construct scenarios like extraterrestrial rape in which the amount of pleasure in the universe would be increased and therefore everything could be justified and permitted. So it seems to me there's just no reason to think on atheism that human happiness is good. Now I want to underscore this by something that he says in his book on moral realism. He makes the very interesting claim that a mental state of mind having the property of goodness is distinct from its having the property of being pleasurable. These are not identical. Moreover, he says, there are possible worlds in which the same mental state has the property of being pleasurable, but it does not have the property of being morally good. Now, in that case, that means it is contingent that this mental state has the property of being morally good, and therefore it cries out for an explanation. Why is this pleasurable mental state morally good on atheism? It's not necessary, it's contingent. There has to be a reason why this mental state being pleasurable should be identified or should have the property of moral goodness. And I simply cannot think of any answer on atheism, and we haven't been given one. But then an even deeper problem surfaces, I think. Notice that on his view, it is the mental state that has the property of being good, not the person. In other words, it's the the mental state which the person has that has the property of goodness, not the person who has the mental state. On his view, persons turn out to have no intrinsic value whatsoever, which to me seems just morally counterintuitive uh, and uh, just underlines the inadequacy of this atheistic utilitarianism. So, in short, I really honestly don't see any reason to think that on atheism we should identify uh, pleasure or happiness, whether of human beings or of extraterrestrials, as morally good. And if we do make that uh, identification, then everything is permitted, because if it increases extraterrestrial pleasure sufficiently, virtually any sort of action can be justified. Secondly, I argued that if God does not exist, there are no objective moral duties. Why? Well, because even if there are objective values, there's no lawgiver to lay any moral obligations or duties upon us. Richard Taylor, whom I quoted before, invites us to imagine 
uh, a state of people living in a, a group of people living in a state of nature. And he says, let's suppose one of them kills another person and takes his goods. He writes, such actions, though injurious to their victims, are no more illicit or immoral than they would be if done by one animal to another. A hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but does not murder it. And another hawk that seizes the fish from the talons of the first takes it, but does not steal it. For none of these things is forbidden. And exactly the same considerations apply to the people we are considering. You see, in the absence of a divine lawgiver, there just is no source of moral obligation or moral duties. And I saw no answer to Professor Tin from Professor Tintra in the last speech on this issue. Finally, number three, there's no moral accountability on atheism. Remember, we saw that there's no reason to be moral, to adopt a moral point of view. Acts of self-sacrifice are particularly inept on the atheistic view. Why should I sacrifice my self-interest and even my life for others whom I don't even know? On the atheistic view, there can be no good reason for such a self-negating uh, course of action. By contrast, I argued that with theism, you have a morally bracing effect because of the presence of moral accountability. And as far as the response from Professor Tencure here, all I saw was his statement that he admitted that no easy refutation of egoism is possible. In other words, he concedes the point that on atheism, there really isn't any moral accountability. Now, if you believe then with, with me that in fact, and with Professor Chen Kru actually, if you believe with both of us that there are objective moral duties, that there are objective moral values, then it follows logically from what I've argued tonight that God must exist. And therefore, it seems to me that on the one hand, we have theism offering us a sound foundation for the objective values that we all recognize and hold dear for the moral duties that we all sense upon our hearts. And it gives us moral accountability. If we think that those things exist, then God must exist. On the other hand, if God doesn't exist, then I'll be quite honestly, even if I were not a Christian, I just don't see any reason on atheism to think that objective moral values, duties, or accountability would exist. And therefore, I think theism provides the more substantive and solid foundation for morality. Thank you, Professor Craig. Now, eight minutes each. Okay. Professor Tenkra, you're welcome. I, I kind of get the impression that we're all losing contact somehow. I, I don't know whether. It's a way of establishing it again. Um, obviously, I mean, we believe that we agree at least that there is an objective morality. Uh, I, I don't think that, that atheism provides any foundation for this belief. belief. So that must be misunderstanding. I mean, uh, a, the, the non-existence of God is, is uh, quite as irrelevant to this discussion as the existence of God. You can't prove any moral uh, theorems uh, taking a point of departure in, in the atheist position. Um, 
And then over and over again, it seems that you, you ask for reasons to, to, to believe, reasons to, to act in all sorts of ways. And you think that God could be the reason. He told us to do this, so that's why we should do it. Or if we don't do it, then he will punish us, so that will be a reason to, to behave well. Well, I, I agree that, that this kind of, of God could exist. Besides my father, my, my uh, government, uh, the European Union, uh, the United Nations and so forth, uh, there could also be a God making up rules and obligations of this kind. And then, then I also admit that this would be a kind of objective morality, just in the same sense that, that, that uh, justice, our ordinary justice is objective. I mean, the police force is there and they, they grab you if you do the wrong thing. So it's, it's a kind of objective morality even, this divine morality then. But, but I wouldn't call it morality. I think it's just another instance of the same kind. I think that morality is very different. And it is self-contained in this manner, I try to indicate. And this also means that when you ask me how do we know that the pleasure, for example, is what really matters in the final analysis, I have to admit that I'm not that certain. I've done my best to, to... to defend this position, but there are many other positions uh, around in the discussion. Some people say that what really matters is that, that the desires you have are satisfied. And there are also persons saying that no matter whether you feel happy and, and, and have your desires satisfied, the important, the crucial thing is that you achieve something in life. And they are all utilitarians. They are all utilitarians, and they disagree on this kinds of subtle points. And then, of course, utilitarianism is just one possible position among many others, and this non-speciesist version of utilitarianism that I have defended. Um, But but my point is not that I can prove my position with reference to the non-existence of God. Uh, And I think that uh, we have to acknowledge that there are duties of this rather different kind than the ones we know from when our father told us to do certain things or when the police is coming to catch us if we don't abide by the rules. There are rules of a very different order. And and moral philosophers agree that there are moral duties, even if there there is no one who, who, who tells us to do certain things. But they disagree, of course, about how we should conceive of these duties. I mean, Immanuel Kant think that the German philosophers think that, that they are self-evident to us somehow and they are imposing themselves upon it. We can realize that we have them, but, but there is no lawgiver imposing them uh, on us. We can just realize that the kind of creatures we are, we have to behave in those ways. It's self-evident to us. Uh, other moral thinkers say that, well, the obligations are there because certain individuals have rights so that's why you are not allowed to do certain things or must do certain things because otherwise you will violate the rights of other people. And then there are those who, like me, think that, that uh, the source of these obligations are really uh, what happens to people when you act one way or the other. So that 
gives us obligations. Even, even I mean, utilitarianism is a morality making very hard demands on us. It's sometimes rejected only on this account that it makes too hard demands on us. And you ask me, well, is there any reason I can give for sacrificing my life, for example, uh, for a higher course if God does not exist? But I think it's a poor reason that someone told me to do so. And I think it's a poor reason that someone will, will punish me if I don't. I think I have a better reason. The reason is simply that this is a way of maximizing the sum total of well-being in universe, in partial manner of doing this. It's a heavy demand on us that this morality makes, but, but I have come to the conclusion that this is the morality that is closest to the truth, at, at least. But again, other people think otherwise, and there are all these competing hypotheses about what constitutes really the, the objective the sound objective moral ground for passing these kinds of judgment. But, but there are all sorts of ideas about how we can answer this question. Why sacrifice my life? Because otherwise I will violate certain people's rights, for example. Because otherwise I will not maximize the sum total of well-being in the universe. There are some creatures that will suffer because I do not sacrifice my life. They suffer more if I don't than I would suffer if I do. So... Um, I, I, my impression is that you don't know, I mean, to, to, to put it rather bluntly, you don't know anything about true morality. What you are talking about is, is something that I can, I can understand what you're talking about. Uh, it's just uh, more of the same kind we have. We have fathers, we have governments, we have European community, we have also someone up there, even more, even mightier. But I think that has nothing to do with morality, with true morality, as I have described it. Thank you, Professor Chenfer. Thank you. And uh, now, Professor Craig. Okay. Eight minutes. All right. I don't think I'm going to need my whole eight minutes because I don't think there's very much that needs to be said. First, does theism provide a sound foundation for morality? Um, Professor Tenkrug admits in the last speech there could be a God, but he says, what you're talking about I wouldn't call morality. Well, why not? Divine command morality gives you a distinction between objective good and evil, between right and wrong. It gives you moral accountability. Uh, I don't see why we should think this is not talking about morality. And when he says, well, you don't know anything about morality, this is not only insulting to me, but it's insulting to Thomas Aquinas and to a whole history of divine command moral theorists like Philip Quinn today or Jeanine Marie Idziak or others. Uh, so it's just a fact that there are lots of good divine command moral theorists today and it's, it's silly to say that they don't know anything about morality. If moral values are rooted in God's nature, then his nature provides the transcendent foundation which exemplifies moral virtues and constitute for us moral virtues. His commands give us a sense of obligation and duty and he holds us morally accountable. So I think theism is clearly successful uh, in providing an ontological foundation for morality. Now what about atheism? Here Dr. Tenture says in his last speech that atheism provides no foundation for morality. 
and that it's not intended to. Well, right, that's just the problem. On atheism, you've got these moral values that are just sort of floating in the air, but they don't have any foundation. It remains mysterious why things like mental states being pleasurable are good. Where do they get this strange moral property? How does it come to attach to this, the mental states of this primate species that has evolved on the planet Earth? Um, he says, well, I can't prove my position, all right, but at least you've got to be able to defend it. You've got to give us some answer to objections to it. There are lots of philosophers today, and historically, who agree that without God, there are no objective moral values and duties. I mean, take Jean-Paul Sartre, for example. Sartre said that in the absence of God-given values, we have no choice but to just, just create our own values and create our own meanings which leads immediately to subjectivism and relativism. Why is he wrong? He's an atheist. Uh, you, you can't just assume that these things would exist on an atheistic view because there are plenty of atheists who disagree as well as theists. So I don't think we've any, seen any reason to think that these mental states contingently possessing the property of uh, being pleasurable and uh, would also contingently have this property of being good. There needs to be some reason why we should regard them as such. And secondly, remember, I also pointed out that if you do include all pleasure in the universe, not just human pleasure, then everything is permitted because it may maximize extraterrestrial pleasure to have virtually any action you think of uh, take place. So it really does lead to everything being permitted if God is dead. I also argued that on atheism there are no objective moral duties. And here Dr. Tencher says, well, the source of obligations is what happens to other people. But I don't see where that provides a sense of duty. That's just a fact, what happens to other people. But where does the obligation come from? Where does the duty come from in the absence of a divine command? You have to have a divine law or, or a, a moral lawgiver as a source of duty, and I don't see why just the fact of consequences happening to other people provides me with any sense of moral duty or obligation. Finally, as to moral accountability, he says, well, self-sacrifice is a way of increasing the good of the world, and that's one reason you should engage in acts of self-sacrifice. But notice this doesn't answer the question of why we should adopt that moral point of view on atheism. His answer simply repeats uh, what uh, makes self-sacrifice good or, or the right thing to do on atheism. On his atheistic, hedonistic, utilitarianism, self-sacrifice might increase the good of the world, and so it would be the right thing to do. But that's not the question here in this third argument about moral accountability. It is why should we adopt the moral point of view? Why should the atheist care that his self-sacrifice will increase the good of the rest of the world? Why should the atheist give up all the existence he ever has or ever can have or will have for the sake of someone else? Why on the atheistic view should he do that? You see, the problem is that without immortality, an ethic of compassion and self-sacrifice becomes an empty abstraction because ultimately it makes no difference to how the universe turns out. The fate of the universe will be the same and your fate will be the same regardless of how you behave. And this is apt, as I say, to lead to demoralization 
and a deterioration of the moral life. By contrast, theism provides a strength to adopt the moral point of view in times of temptation or when uh, it goes against self-interest. So I think, again, in conclusion, that we've seen that theism gives you a good foundation for, for morality. Atheism does not. If then you think that there are objective moral values and duties and accountability, then you should conclude with me that therefore God exists. Thank you, Professor Craig. Now, uh, five minutes, Professor Tanfra. Okay. Yeah, just a trivial point, that misunderstanding that has surfaced in the discussion here. I, I mean, there is an, uh, a sense in which everything is permitted on the morality I defend. Uh, but, but I don't think that this was the idea intended by Dostoevsky. Perhaps it was, but, but I have never understood him in that way. I mean, utilitarianism is the idea that you should always act so as to maximize the sum total of well-being in the universe. And this means, of course, that there, there are no more conventionally described kinds of actions that are always wrong or always right. You can't even say that you should never torture a person if you adhere to the utilitarian creed, uh, because this, in some very special situation it might be the right thing to do because it produces better effects in the long run. So, so in that sense, uh, I'm advocating a kind of morality, implying that everything is permitted. But, but, but this is not more a nihilism, because it's a very heavy demand you have on yourself in each instance that you should, should act, you should do that act that is maximizing in the, in the way I've indicated. So uh, all actions are either right or wrong. You can divide the moral universes in, in actions that are right or wrong. And some of those who are right are also obligatory they are your duty to perform them because they, they have many alternatives can be, be equally good, but, but uh, the, those that are uniquely better than every other alternative in the situation, those are uh, the actions that are your moral duty. So that's my idea of moral duty. And then Professor Craig comes back to the question over and over again, and perhaps we find, uh, come to, to the situation where, where it doesn't really, uh, is any point in repeating our arguments, but, but he questions me, uh, is there any foundation for this kind of obligation? And, and can, can we really believe that people will take such obligations seriously? And, and there, is there any reason for acting on them? And I repeat, well, yes, there are good, solid, moral reasons for abiding by them. It's the right thing to do. But then Professor Craig wants another kind of reason. But how can we have a better reason than, than a basic moral reason for, for action? I fail to understand that. And finally, I think the main problem with, it, with this idea of morality founded on uh, the idea that God tells us what to do. I mean, the higher... Um, the higher instance to go to is God than when you want to know what to go, do and he tells us. Uh, the, the problem with calling this morality, I mean, I have no problem with understanding this idea. I've repeated that also many times. But, but the problem with, with this idea is that um, 
you would like to, uh, as soon as you have an authority, as soon as you have someone saying something, something or doing something, you would like to be able to question, is it the right thing to do? But, but if God has ordained something, then, I mean, you can't give that kind of, you can raise this kind of question because it's an empty question. Uh, and that's really what's wrong with reducing morality to, 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 uh, to, to religion in this way. And there is no need to do that. I, I don't think that all the authorities Professor Craig were referring to here have done so. I, I, I think actually perhaps Occam did in, in one interpretation of him, but, but perhaps he did not. And, and certainly I think that's not part of, of uh, Thomas Aquinas' view of this. And I, I think it shouldn't be part of Christian moral faith. That's okay. Thank you. Professor Craig, five minutes. I think what we've seen tonight is a demonstration of how secular philosophy too often overlooks the alternative provided by Christian theism. In our post-Christian Western society, we just sort of assume that we've got to get along without God and that uh, a theistic foundation for a world and life view is outmoded and obsolete. And therefore, it's simply not taken seriously or examined carefully by uh, many of our prominent moral theorists today. But when you do examine it closely, it seems to me that Christian theism provides a far more plausible foundation for the ethical life than does atheism. I think we've seen tonight first that theism provides a sound foundation for morality. It gives us objective values, it gives us objective moral duties, it gives us moral accountability, and uh, I think none of these have been refuted in tonight's debate. By contrast, I think we've seen that atheism, when you question its assumptions, just doesn't stand up. The problem with Dr. Tenchu's hedonistic utilitarianism is not the utilitarianism so much, it's not the superstructure, it's the foundations on which it's built, it's the atheism on which it's built. And that simply provides a rotten foundation for a system of ethics. First of all, there's no reason to have objective moral values on such a view. Uh, on such a view, there simply isn't any reason to identify pleasure or the pleasure of mental states as having this odd property of goodness. Uh, and if you do, it still leads then to everything being permitted. Now, interestingly enough, he admitted in his last speech that on his view, in one sense, everything is permitted. And, and I think that's right. But he said it's not in the sense by Dostoevsky. Well, I would say that on atheism, everything is permitted in multiple senses. First, everything is permitted uh, in the sense that on the basis of maximizing pleasure, you can justify anything. In his book, Dr. Tenshire even says that torture of an innocent person could be justified to bring about the maximal happiness of a great number of already very happy people. So you can justify anything on that principle. Secondly, in Dostoevsky's sense, there's no immortality and therefore no moral accountability. In that sense, everything is permitted. Thirdly, I've argued there's no moral duties because there's no moral lawgiver and so everything is permitted literally in that sense. Nothing is forbidden. So 
Atheism just doesn't have the ontological wherewithal to provide a sound foundation for morality. As for moral accountability, Dr. Ten Chu repeats, there are moral reasons for self-sacrifice, but you cannot provide moral reasons for adopting the moral point of view, because what we are asking is, why should we heed those moral reasons? And here, you, you must provide some non-moral reason for why you adopt the moral point of view on atheism, and there, there simply isn't any reason because there's no moral accountability. This is not a problem I invented. This is a problem, for example, that Kai Nielsen, as we saw in my first speech, struggles with because as an atheistic ethicist, he says there is no way to refute the egoist or the amoralist who says why adopt the, the moral point of view on atheism. So basically, I think atheism is really bankrupt. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.